Section 20 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wayne Cook. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 37, The Science of Health, Part 1. What is health? Health is a word which means so much and means so many things that it is impossible to compress its wide and varied significance within the compass of any brief definition. It is an ancient word, too, and it has been changing and widening in its connotation ever since it was conceived and born, and it is changing and widening still. As its derivation suggests, it originally meant something like wholeness, and probably referred to freedom from obvious bodily wounds and injuries, and had little or no reference to the deeper and obscurer vital processes. It is true that Hippocrates, the father of medicine, defined health physiologically as a condition in which, quote, each humor is in due proportion of quantity and force, but especially properly commingled, end quote. But physiology was very crude and empirical in those days, and Hippocrates did not know the difference between a vein and an artery, and could not distinguish between a nerve and a tendon, while Aristotle taught that the brain was a sponge to keep the blood cool, which is good metaphor, but bad physiology. The work of Galen made it possible to have a clearer view of the physiology of health, and today, when physiology has become a great science, some very definite physiological ideas dominate the meaning of the term health, as used by doctors and scientific men. The body is now regarded as a chemical and physical system, and by health we mean mainly useful, efficient, and harmonious production of energy a matter depending more upon general functional harmony and perfection than upon anatomical integrity. Health as Working Capacity The conception of health as working capacity, founded on chemical and physiological basis, becomes even more definite and precise with the advance of chemistry and physiology and their sister sciences, for we find out more and more the factors which affect energy income and output. Today, we may put a little thermometer under a man's tongue, and if it reads 102 degrees Fahrenheit, we can say with certitude that that man is out of health, and that he is as incapable of full work as an overheated engine. Or we may listen to a man's heart, and find that its valves leak, and we may justly conclude that it is as inefficient for work as a leaking pump. Or we may test a drop of a man's blood and decide that the man is in bad health since he lacks oxygen to keep his furnaces going full blast. Or we may find a microbe in a man's veins and know that his energy must quickly fail. Or we may count a man's pulse and find it 140 and judge at once that he is out of health and unfit for work. On the other hand, we may find that a man's temperature is 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit, that his heart is as sound as a bell, that his blood is pure, that he has no microbes in his veins, and that his pulse is 72 and of good quality, and even if the man has lost an arm or a leg or an eye, 
we can label him healthy and can safely infer that he has normal health, that is, normal capacity for work. In fact, all our accumulating knowledge of physiological processes make for precision in our conception and measurement of health. The Energy of Food Regarded as a material system for the development and regulation of energy, a living animal organism is in many ways a mechanical marvel. Like other machines, it requires fuel, and as in the case of other machines, its fuel is mostly carbon. But the carbon of food, not the carbon of coal or oil. Now, the carbon of food is the very same carbon which the red rays of the sun tear from the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere in the laboratory of the green leaf. The wrench of the sun sets the carbon vibrating with new energy, and when it is afterwards built into starch, the energy is latent there and is delivered to the animal which eats the starch, or fat, or sugar, or protein constructed out of the starch and is manifested as actual animal energy as soon as the food is oxidized in the animal's tissues, just as coal gives off its energy as heat, when it is oxidized in a furnace. Parentheses. When another element combines with oxygen, as carbon in particular so readily does, we speak of it as being oxidized. The process is one of combustion, in which heat and energy are liberated. End parentheses. If we put glowing carbon into a jar of oxygen, it oxidizes quickly and burns fiercely, while if we put the carbon of our food in contact with the oxygen carried by red blood corpuscles, it oxidizes slowly and burns quietly, heating the body usually only to 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit and manifesting itself not only in heat but in chemical mechanical and electrical energy. But in each case, the process is essentially a freeing of solar energy previously imparted to the carbon. Our bodies, therefore, are sun machines, worked by the red rays of a star 93 million miles away, radiated, it may be, a million years ago. When Gibernat, for instance, consumed soup made of a mastodon's teeth, he put into his heartbeat the carbon of the food crushed by the monster's molars hundreds of thousands of years ago. And the carbon had probably been energized in some tree fern by the tropical sunlight of that prehistoric era. Gimbernet really drank in his soup not only the gelatin from the monstrous molars, but also starch from the prehistoric trees and the red light of a prehistoric sun. We are not at all so prehistoric in our meals as that, but every man lives and moves by virtue of the red light of the sun which he consumes with his porridge or potatoes or beefsteak or bread and butter. We cannot wink an eyelid without liberating the energy of these red rays from our culinary carbon. Chemically speaking, foods are divisible into carbohydrates, such as starch and sugar, fats, such as butter, and proteins, such as white of egg and meat. All such foods can be oxidized by burning, and their value as energy producers can be estimated by the heat they give off during their combustion. 
we estimate heat in calories, a calorie being the amount of heat required to raise one gram of water one degree centigrade. And we find on burning these three kinds of food and oxygen that one gram of carbohydrate produces 1.4 calories of heat, one gram of fat, 9.3 calories, and one gram of protein, 4.1 calories. Heat is, of course, a form of energy and is changeable into definite amounts of other forms of energy, such as muscular motion. And it is known that a calorie of heat is equivalent to the energy required to raise a weight of 425.5 grams one meter. Thus, it is quite easy to calculate how much heat and muscular energy should be given to the body by the slow oxidation in its tissues of certain amounts of food. And if we put a man in a special chamber called a calorimeter, where the amount of heat and of other forms of energy expends could be measured, it will be found that he produces about as many calories of heat and other forms of energy as his food would produce if burned outside the body. Accordingly, if we know how much energy a man expends under various conditions, it is not difficult to calculate the food he requires. All living involves expenditure of energy, breathing and thinking, as well as manual or physical exercise. It is also easy enough from figures of food consumption to find out how many calories are contained in the average man's diet. Before the war, the average Englishman consumed 3,422 calories of energy in his food. During the war, the Royal Society Food Committee came to the conclusion that the average man required 3,390 calories of energy, so that the average man would seem to have adapted his diet to his requirements very successfully. To keep the heart beating and the other organs working, and to maintain the temperature of the body, about 2,836 calories were required on the average, and any calories in excess of the requirements are available for muscular energy. Only about 20%, however, of the calories available can be converted into actual muscular work. The rest is dissipated as heat. 20% seems a small portion of work, but it is a larger proportion than can be obtained from any steam engine. Proportions of different kinds of food. In view of these facts, it might seem that a man has only to swallow so many calories of energy in his food in order to get so many calories of work from his muscles. And we find men who are foolish enough to eat huge quantities of food in order to gain strength. But food must be carefully chosen. It must be also suited in quantity to the boiler capacity of the man and to his digestive, respiratory, and circulatory potentialities. We must not take foods indiscriminately. We must take certain proportions of carbohydrates, of fats, and of proteins. And the last is particularly necessary, providing not only fuel to work the body, but also material to build it up and to repair its waste. For it must be noticed that the body machine not only does work, but also builds up and repairs itself. We must also take such forms of these food materials as the digestive organs can digest, and we must consider their digestive capacity. Further, 
we must consider the oxidizing capacity of the blood, heart, and respiration for the carbon of the food that is of no value for work unless there be oxygen to burn it. A man who is to obtain much energy from large quantities of food must have all his organs strong and efficient, otherwise the food will be wasted. A man of powerful constitution may be able to digest and utilize perhaps 10,000 calories in 24 hours. But all men are not made that way, and it is perhaps just as well they are not. It is not necessary for a man to weigh out so many calories of food, and indeed it is always better for a man to weigh himself than to weigh his food. If he finds his weight becoming unduly great, that is proof positive that he is eating more than he can turn or is turning into energy, while if he finds he is losing weight, and if there is no disease to account for the loss, that is proof presumptive that he is consuming his own tissues in the production of energy, and could therefore utilize more food for the purpose if it were given him. Further, an observant man will soon discover, with a few scientific principles to guide him, what foods and what quantity of food result in the best output of energy. The trouble, of course, is that men are often careless or unobservant or self-indulgent. A very busy man neglects his dietary till suddenly he finds his bones sticking through his skin and his energy unequal to his daily work. Part 1. The three classes of foods, as we have said, are carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. These are the foods proper, that is to say, the substances whose oxidation gives man his supply of energy. But besides these foodstuffs proper, man must add to his dietary certain other substances which are necessary for the complete digestion, assimilation, and utilization of these main articles of diet. He must include in his menu certain amounts of the remarkable liquid, water. He must also make sure that his dietary contains certain salts, such as common salt, and certain mysterious substances called vitamins. But in ordinary dietaries, there is always water added in some form or other, and in any properly varied dietary, containing milk, meat, bread, and vegetables, there are plenty of vitamins. Importance of Vitamins the vitamins, or accessory food factors, have introduced a new idea into the theory of dietetics which is independent of any question of calories. These substances are present in foodstuffs in such small amounts as to be valueless in themselves as sources of energy, but in some way not yet understood, they are essential to the health, growth, and even life of the body. They have not been isolated or chemically defined, but it is now becoming well known what foodstuffs contain them, and what diets produce the disastrous results which mark their absence. They are all ultimately products of the plant world. Lack of one of these accessory food factors causes scurvy, a disease which was commoner in the days of sailing ships and of consequent long periods without fresh food. Lack of another causes the nervous disease known as beriberi, which has a curious history. Some native races of India live largely on rice, 
and when machine rolling began to replace the more primitive methods, beriberi became rampant. It was then found that the machines husked the rice grains too efficiently, and that it was the lack of some ingredient in the husks, formerly eaten in large part, that caused the disease. Careful experiments in the feeding of pigeons confirmed the result, and when the knowledge was gained, the remedy was simple. The third accessory of food factor is an ingredient of animal fats, notably of cod liver oil, and seems to play an important part in the physiology of growth and in the prevention of rickets. All these substances, as has been said, exist in sufficient quantity in a well-varied dietary. But wherever we get restrictions in the nature of the diet, however ample the mere quantity of food, there's a danger that one or other being present in insufficient degree. During the siege of Cute, there was scurvy among the British troops and beriberi among the Indians. And even at home, the question was an important one to those responsible for controlling and rationing the nation's food supply. In the feeding of infants and invalids, in the rationing of exploring expeditions and of military forces on active service, and in the food supplies of the poor, special attention requires to be paid to providing adequate vitamins. Without these, no mere sufficiency of quantity, no mere numbers of calories, no mere increase of proteins, carbohydrates, or fats as such will be of any avail in the preservation of proper health. Enjoying Food The whole organic well-being of a man depends on his food, and no man can have that harmonious output of useful energy which we call health if he eat too much or too little food or if his digestion be inefficient. Digestion, however, begins in a sense in the olfactory organ and ends in that colloid solution which constitutes living protoplasm. And indigestion is very often not due to any deficiency of the digestive organs, but can be attacked and cured on quite other grounds. To digest food properly, we must enjoy it. Parentheses, and the man who does not enjoy his food is unlikely to enjoy anything else. End parentheses. And to enjoy it thoroughly, we must smell it and taste it. The smell and taste of food makes the mouth water. And that is the beginning of digestion. But the smell and taste, as the Russian scientist Pavlov showed, also cause the stomach to water. To eat food in the spirit of dust to dust I commit, is to invite indigestion and ill health. And many people suffer from ill health simply because they have never learned to enjoy their food. The improvement of health, that is, the increase of energy, that often follows more thorough mastication, is largely due to stimulation of the digestion through the senses of smell and taste. The digestive juices, stimulated by the sense of taste and smell, were called by Pavlov psychic juices, and they undoubtedly play a big part in preliminary digestion. Another cause of indigestion is certainly the lack of fresh-moving air in dining rooms. Without fresh-moving air, we cannot have sufficient respiration and circulation, and without efficient respiration and circulation, the process of secretion and assimilation associated with digestion cannot 
function properly. Muscular development may be exaggerated. The great majority of people have digestions quite capable of supplying them with all the energy they can pleasurably and profitably employ. There is no great advantage in the possession of large muscles and great muscular energy. So far as energy of that kind is concerned, a flea or grasshopper or ant or beetle can put man to shame. Perfect health is possible without unusual muscular development, muscular strength, or muscular endurance. And the various health systems that devote themselves to developing and strengthening muscles are usually a mistake from the point of view of energy. For at best, big muscles can manifest mighty energy only for a few years, and the energy they use means unnecessary work for all the vital organs. It is waste of the wonderful potential energy of the carbon compounds. In bygone times, muscular energy was of value in the struggle for existence. The man who could draw a stout bow or swing a heavy battle axe or even carry a big load had vital advantages over the man with weaker arms and legs. But even then, muscular strength did not count for everything for man managed to extirpate many animals ten times stronger than himself. Now in these days of rifles and poison gases and machinery, muscle plays a subordinate part in life. From the carbon of his food, a man may obtain a few hundred calories of energy for his two arms. But the energy of coal now supplies every man with about as many arms as Briarius and their energy of oil carries a man in his motor car as far as one hour as his legs could carry him in ten. Muscular energy, beyond a certain point, is no longer worth the candle, and a man may be all the healthier in the fullest sense of the word healthy, and that he requires and uses only a moderate amount of muscular energy. The chief advantage, indeed, of coal and machinery as that they liberate man's energy for higher tasks than hewing wood or carrying water. The average man does not now require to make his heart and other vital organs labor on behalf of his muscles. He can make his muscles labor on behalf of his vital organs and especially on behalf of his brains. He can take muscular exercise to develop his breathing capacity, to strengthen the grip of his heart, to improve his circulation and to stimulate his digestion, and all for the sake of his intellectual and aesthetic life. Not only the idea of wholeness, but also the idea of values enters into the modern conception of health, and a man who exercises all his energies harmoniously and in proportion to their spiritual and social value must be considered healthier than a man with the digestion of an ostrich, the strength of an ox, and the brains of a guinea pig. Exercise. For intellectual work, little food is required over and above what is needed by the heart and lungs and for the maintenance of the body heat. And it is certain that most men, other than manual workers, eat more food than is necessary for the muscular and nervous energy they expend. It is equally certain that many men unnecessarily expend much more energy and muscular movement 
than is good for their mental constitution. Yet muscular exercise in moderation, after food in moderation, increases the sum total of the energies. A normal man can dance, walk, swim, play golf or cricket, and take other forms of exercise, and by such exercises so increase his digestive, respiratory, and circulatory powers that even after the expenditure of muscular effort, he has more energy available than before for higher purposes. Exercise, short of fatigue, is one of the best ways of facilitating the running of all the machinery of the body and of adding to the general store of energy. Some men seem to be able to maintain mental energy without it, but even the strongest man will suffer in some degree in his mental health and muscular efficiency if he do not exercise his muscular system and so promote the activity of all his vital organs. Happiness correlated with health. We have said that most men eat too much, or at least more than they require for the energy they expend. But it would be a mistake to carry asceticism too far. The food gives the body not only warmth and working power, it has also some subtle action on the character and temperament. A hungry man is an angry man. A well-fed man is often a warm-hearted man, and a fat man a contented man. Energy, even mental energy, is not everything, and it is sometimes wise to sacrifice a little efficiency for the sake of a little happiness. It is probably better to be happy and unhealthy than healthy and unhappy, parentheses, though the choice may seldom have to be made, in parentheses. For happiness liberates and directs energy even if it does not create it. On these grounds, and only doubtfully on these grounds, can the use of alcoholic drinks be justified. It is well proved now that alcohol has very little food value and that even in small doses it reduces energy and possibly shortens life. But if it gladden a sad heart, it gives both heart and brain more driving power and makes life more worth living. Food may be the best fuel for the machine, but where life's wheels grate dry, happiness is a good oil. End of section 20